So let's say you decide to become a therapist and you, you really, really want to help people. Specifically, you want to you help children. You want to work with kids. And then you begin your career and you start seeing clients. And you discover that these, some of these children, if not all of them, are being harshly disciplined by their teachers and their parents. In your conversations with the kids, you start thinking, huh, I think the parents and the teachers are, are not being... Uh, the best with this kid and you feel bad for the kids. So you go to the teachers and the parents and you say, Hey, you know what? I think you should relax a little bit. I've been talking with the kid and I, I've determined that. And so, you know, uh, now you might not word it that way, but you know, you have a conversation with them. You try to get them to relax their harsh discipline, but they refuse, or at least, you know, maybe they verbally say, yeah, sure. And then they don't really do it. And then each session after that, the kid comes in and talks about how he's grounded again and how he had all his privileges taken away and how everyone is yelling at him all the time. So you decide, I, I really need to do something. And you have an official meeting with the teachers and the parents, and you emphatically try to convince them to relax their or, and to change their parenting style and their discipline style. The meeting is tense. The meeting is awkward. It's uncomfortable. The teachers and parents seem unconvinced. You feel tension between you and them. They tell you that you don't understand the real situation and that you've been bamboozled and tricked and manipulated by the kid. The kid's manipulated you to believe that he's an angel when he's anything but an angel. And you leave the meeting super angry and upset and and you you really dislike these teachers and these parents. You feel insulted. You know, they're putting you down. They think you don't know what you're doing. You feel demoralized. You know, what I've done everything I can. You feel hopeless. And you think there's no use in trying to help this kid because the parents and the teachers are unwilling to change. And you downward spiral into despair and you eventually quit your career as a therapist and you become something else like a car salesman or something. This is a real story about someone that I know, actually. And this frustration between clinicians and parents and teachers is actually extremely common, if not universal, for therapists who work with kids. For example, patron Simon wrote in and said, Dear Kirk, I work in a school one day a week. And I often hear teachers yelling and screaming at kids out of frustration. I even attended a meeting last week where the special, where the special education staff were trying to convince me that it was appropriate to suspend a five-year-old child with autism spectrum just for being rigid. I also see many families in the clinic where parents are hell-bent on disciplining their children, even though many of them have been traumatized and are suffering emotionally. They are often uncomfortable with shifting to an empathic model of parenting. They see this as, quote-unquote, giving in. What might object relations theory tell us about their way of interacting punitively when interacting with others, whom they cannot control but fail to give in? Love to hear your insightful comments on this one. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. 
Yes, patron Simon, I have been there before. I've seen this many times. I have many supervisees ask me about this. It's it's extremely common, if you if not universal, experience when you work with kids. There there are a number of points I want to make. Number one, you can't change people unless they want to change. In general, now some people will say, well, you know, sometimes you can kind of trick people into changing, but in general, you can't change people unless they want to change. And therapy is voluntary. And I'm talking about the teachers and the parents. When, you know, we help people who want help. And a lot of therapists, particularly novice therapists, particularly therapists who work with kids and particularly therapists who work at agencies, this this idea that we only help people who want help is actually kind of a novel idea. Because what happens in a lot of these family uh, therapy agencies is the parents, you have some problem in a family and the parents don't think they're the problem and the kids don't think they're the problem, but the parent drags the kid into therapy and says, fix the kid. So the kid is saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't know why my parent is dragging me here. And uh, so no one thinks they're the problem and no one is asking the therapist explicitly to help them. They're asking the therapist to help them with someone else in their family. I want you to fix this other person in my family. And that creates a situation in which many, if not all of your clients, none of them actually want you to actually help them. They, they're, not, they're not coming to you for help. They're actually coming to you to help another person. And that other person doesn't think they need help. So this idea that we only help people who, who want help is, is kind of a novel idea to some of my supervisees. And as a person in private practice, I have the luxury of, of having uh, all of my clients extremely interested in wanting to change for themselves. And so it's, a, it's just kind of a bit of a difference between the, the sort of clients you get when you first start out and the clients you get later on in your career. But anyway, I bring up this point because um, you're likely to see people who are sabotaging their lives or other people's lives, but they're not asking for help. So we are helpless as we watch these people harm themselves and other people. So you're, you're watching these parents and these teachers not do good work and not, uh, they're behaving in a way that you don't like, but they're not asking you for help for that necessarily. And so you, you can't help them with that if they don't ask for your help. And this is a key wisdom in, in therapy, particularly in family therapy. And it takes years to adjust to this. Sometimes you need to sort of detach yourself a little bit from situations, um, I'll get more into actually how to help this family. But this, this first idea is know your role. Know when someone is asking you for help and when someone isn't. And also know how to help people to ask you for help. <laughs> so if the parent is not asking you for help and you see them parenting in a way that you don't like, well, the first step is not to get them to change their parenting. But this first step is to try to get them to ask you for help. <laughs> so you have to make a case for them to get involved with you in conversations and problem solving re regarding parenting. And that beginning step has nothing to do with telling them that they need to change. It has everything to do with talking about what therapy can provide for them and uh, that sort of thing and building a relationship with them. So, but if none of that works, sometimes you just have to detach yourself a little bit so that it doesn't bust you up inside because there's only so much you can do. As therapists, particularly as family therapists, you'll see 
terrible things happening before your eyes that you just don't have any power over. And as I said in the, be, you know, the beginning sort of vignette, we all enter this field wanting to change the world. And when the world is uh, changeable and yet it's, it's not responding to our change interventions, it can be extremely frustrating. But the key wisdom here is that you can't change everything. Only You can only change what people want to engage in conversations around change. You can't, even though they might even be your client is sort of the thing. So even though you have a client who is coming to sessions, they might not actually be ready for change. And so talking about getting them ready for change is actually the key. So when you see these teachers and parents harming the child, patron Simon, in some instances, if you've, if you tried every reasonable tactic, you might just have to witness this, witness it because there's nothing more you can do. Okay. So number one point here is, um, you can't change people unless they want to change. And, and, uh, so that's number one. Number two People come to therapy with problems. I often tell people this, and uh, I, I always um, feel a little funny about saying that, but it's this, it's this obvious point that I want to make to people that when you are presented with something that's getting in the way of therapy, it's, to see it as a barrier to your therapy is... In my, uh, in most situations, and in my opinion, you're not seeing the situation for what it is. For instance, if a parent is presenting as harsh and rigid, then that's a problem worth addressing in therapy, just like any other problem. If, a, for instance, if a kid was having trouble regulating his emotions, you wouldn't think, "Well, he's just going to have to change that right away, or else I'm not going to work with him." No, you, you wouldn't think that. You would think this emotional regulation issue that I'm, that I just found out about, this is his issue. And there are reasons he has trouble with this. And I'm willing to work slowly on this issue over time because it takes time to help people change their emotional regulation. Well, the same is true for rigid authority figures. You wouldn't think, or you shouldn't think their rigidity is getting in your way. Instead, you should think this is their issue. There are reasons they have trouble with this, and I'm willing to work slowly on this issue over time. That might mean you meet individually with the teachers and the parents, and you dive into their pasts, and you help them with their emotions and their cognitions. But you only do that after you establish a strong therapeutic attachment and alliance, which takes time. Time not spent contradicting them or conflicting with them or undermining them. It's time spent building that relationship just like you would with a child. Parents are just as wounded as children are, if not more, because they've had more time to be wounded. So you need to spend your time getting to know these people, time respecting them, time listening to them. Only then, after they trust you and like you, are they open to you overtly criticizing their approach to discipline. This is why child therapy should always involve family therapy. Children exist in a system. And as a clinician, you need to work with that entire system. Otherwise, you're missing most of the factors involved in the so-called problem. I say so-called problem because a lot of the problems that families and these systems bring in are actually just a symptom of the real problem. Now, patron Simon, you asked about the object relations angle. And let me go into that. Many, if not all, of the teachers and parents you meet as a clinician, many of them 
if not all of them, need corrective emotional experiences to heal from their wounds so they don't use projective identification and, and other defenses on the children in their interactions with the children. And you can provide or facilitate those corrective experiences. That's the beauty of being a family therapist. You have direct contact with all of those people. If you just work individually with a child, you, you often don't have any real therapeutic contact with the rest of the system. As a family therapist, you do. Now, providing therapy to teachers is, you know, kind of a funny thing. Uh, I will say that I can, even though the teachers aren't my clients, I can intervene in a sense. But, partic- but, but parents are absolutely up for grabs as recipients of your therapy when you're a family therapist. And so as a family therapist, you can facilitate corrective, corrective experiences between family members in your sessions. For example, say you have a mother who is overly harsh and rigid. And you assess that she has that she had a mother when she was growing up who was overly harsh and rigid and rejecting. So you facilitate experiences in session where the family provides deep empathy for her. Maybe even the, the children provide empathy for her. And this heals her wounds, which results in a lesser need for projective identification and other kinds of defenses. And as a result, behaviorally, she's less harsh and rigid with her kids. This is a simple example, but I hope you get my drift. Okay, point number three, bias against discipline. It's been my experience that most clinicians are biased against discipline. Not all, but, but many are biased against discipline, meaning that they tend to believe that children don't need much discipline, and when they come into contact with the discipline system uh, and, and behaviors involved with their clients, they tend to think that they shouldn't be happening. There are particular clinicians who are particularly susceptible to this belief, such as clinicians who don't have older children, or clinicians who were raised by abusive parents, or clinicians who have very easy children. If, if you don't have kids or your kids are very easy, then you believe that a tiny bit of discipline is necessary to help kids develop. But if you have difficult kids... Um, and, and I know clinicians who have difficult kids, they're much more likely to empathize with parents and teachers who struggle with difficult kids. Also, culture is a factor. Some cultures are more harsh than others in general in their parenting. And this can be a good or a bad thing. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated topic. But, but harsh parenting alone doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Harsh parenting in some cultures can be a good thing if it's matched up with deep love and deep involvement. And research has found this. So just looking at discipline style alone as a component of parenting and, you know, being a teacher, for instance, is not the only thing one should look at. Because culturally speaking, you might just automatically believe that it's not helpful when it, when it actually might be a, a component of an overall approach to this child that is actually um, uh, okay, so to speak. So the point is, know your bias against discipline and try to have an open mind. Now, if you assess a situation and determine that the discipline is harmful and not working, which is often the case in these families, then by all means, do something about it. But just because your gut isn't comfortable with a discipline system, that doesn't mean something is actually wrong. And this is extremely important to understand. When you come into contact with families and cultures and people and da-da-da, just because your gut doesn't like something 
that does not mean that something is actually wrong. You must be able to articulate exactly what is wrong and at the same time tentatively speak it and also tentatively say it in your mind. As a person myself who has treated you know thousands of people and families over the past 20 years, I can tell you that the more experience I have with human beings, the more I realize the less I know about what is good in life. I, I have seen so many different permutations of parenting and so many different permutations of marriages and so many different permutations of friendships and ways of being in the world. And at first thought, oh, that's just not going to work. They're going to have to change that. And then slowly over time realize, oh, I see this. I see how this works for them. And so even though my gut and even though maybe even my clinical mind was evaluating something as not good, over time I realized, oh, actually, I didn't know that. So the older I get, the less judgmental and the less I even claim to know. And and this actually is bothersome to other clinicians because we'll be talking about a case and uh, you know, the room, the clinicians in the room seem quite convinced of one thing. And then I, I'll say something like, well, I don't know. I mean, it could go any way. It's just hard to tell. There's no real scientific way of determining what the answer is to that question. And then, and then I don't make any friends that way. <laughs> you know, for instance, I'm in a room of a bunch of family therapists and they've all determined that this, you know, father is being uh, verbally abusive and it's, and it's, no good. And then I say, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've seen that kind of behavior go a number of different ways. And I don't know, I think we have to really ask the kid how they feel about it. And we have to look at the overall parenting style and approach. And we have to, you know, da, 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 da. and even then it's just, it's kind of hard to tell. And what if we take that away? What's it going to be replaced with? And, and I'm always like questioning everything without providing any answers. And everyone looks at me like, you know, I'm an idiot. Don't you realize everyone else is on board with this other point of view? It also might just be my rebellious nature that I tend to just rebel against groups. And so um, it could be that too. But anyway, my, my point here is know your bias against discipline, know your culture, uh, and know that you don't know everything that you think you know is the point. No one does. And uh, now, again, having said that, all of us family therapists will come into contact with parenting that we, over time, will feel fairly confident that the parenting needs to change and by all means, take action. But I'm, I just, I see that a lot of people without doing that longer assessment will just jump to this conclusion that a particular parenting practice is quote unquote bad. Okay, number four, and this is the last one. So we had number one, uh, you can't change people unless they want to change in general. Number two, people come to therapy with problems. And so just because something bothers you doesn't mean you should try to just instantly get rid of it. You should actually try to treat it. And number three, by, uh, know your bias against discipline. Number four is triangulation. As Bowen taught us in every system, there exist triangles to handle anxiety. And when a child is having trouble, there is always, uh, you know, tension and anxiety and triangles in the, in the system. And as you join the system as a clinician, you become triangulated naturally. And since you have a savior complex, as we all do, 
you easily try you're you're easily triangulated against the parents and the teachers particularly if you only build a relationship with the child and this is key if you only build a relationship with the child this makes you extremely susceptible to losing your clinical judgment since you might become enmeshed with the system particularly with the child and this is a particular problem for some clinicians who have unfinished business with their family of origin if you have unfinished business and we all do but if it's significant enough it becomes you become a, a very easy target for a triangulation when the tension rise rises in a in a system uh you know for instance if if someone has a bone to pick with their own parents they displace and transfer that energy toward the parents of their children their child clients it's human to do so and we all do it but if you don't if you're not aware of this it can you know bite you in the ass and so we all must monitor that and eternally endeavor to heal from our childhood wounds but getting back to triangulation, the more tension in a system, the more there is a pull to be triangulated and the more rigid that triangle becomes and the more delusional each member of that triangle becomes. And so the key is to remain differentiated for the sake of the system. If you remain differentiated, as Bowen recommended, then you will help the system to differentiate and be more flexible. So when you feel an urge to criticize and fight for the kids, take a deep breath and go through your regular routine of differentiation, which can involve a lot of different techniques. And as you differentiate, while you're in close contact with the system, and that's important, you have to be in close contact with the system, absorbing that tension, and at the same time you're using all your techniques to differentiate internally and maybe behaviorally, the other people in the system will follow in your footsteps. It's really that simple. The fact is, is that people want to do their best, and sometimes they just need uh, someone to be a stable force, which they, um, you know, can appropriate into their own behavior, if that makes sense. Now, the differentiation doesn't mean that you're just blank. It means that you're actively trying to manage your anxiety, and as you do that, you can manage your relationships with these people. Uh, Bowen didn't talk so much about this, but as you, as you maintain those relationships in the midst of being pulled into a triangle, people will trust you more and they'll feel more calm around you and they will go to you for help more often. They'll want to talk with you more often. And that includes the parents. Now, patient Simon you might already know all of what I have just said. But it's one thing I've learned from being a supervisor is that as soon as I start talking, I always have to say, maybe you already know this, but this is what comes to mind. So, you know, patient Simon, maybe you already knew this. Maybe this is just, maybe you've already been through all that and you're just asking a little question about object relations and, and, and it's been insulting to you to remind you of things that you already knew of. So, you know, I just want to say that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you would like to let me know what you think, you can email me at contact at psychology in Seattle. That's email contact at psychology in Seattle. Also dot com. Also, if you haven't already be become a patron, do so by going to patreon dot com. That's patreon dot com. Go there, become a patron of the podcast and you'll get access to all of our premium stuff, including very secret episodes that are just for just for patrons. 
All right. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of care of yourself because you deserve it.